Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, I'm talking with Corentin Selch, publishing manager at Voodoo. Corentin has overseen the publishing activities at Voodoo for the last few years and has worked with over a hundred external studios to develop hyper-casual games. In this discussion, we talk about the optimal way to test hyper-casual games, about the characteristics of the teams that can repeat their success, and how the rapid development and testing procedures could be brought outside of hyper-casual games. But before we go to this episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. Before we go on, I'd like to introduce today's sponsor, GameI. One of the biggest challenges when making a multiplayer game is what do you do if your game gets a sudden surge of players? What happens when a streamer picks up your game and you get a few thousand, even a few million new players? It all comes down to your servers. There are three major problems that can happen if you get more players than you can handle. First, there's an issue of lag. The game will feel slow for some people to play, making it an unfair game. Second, you can run out of servers completely, leading to long queue times and frustrated players. Third, there's the cost. Even if you use a cloud solution, the costs are going to skyrocket if you're using too many servers. That's where GameI comes in. They host your multiplayer games without a huge price tag, and they automatically spin up new sessions for you only when you need them. They do this by aggregating the world's best server infrastructure and making it all available through a simple API. By using GameMy, you can simply run your live ops knowing that they can spin up game sessions anywhere in the world, and make sure that your players are always put in the best locations. You send them the information and GameI will find you the best location. GameI, bringing your players closer together. Check them out at GameI.com. And don't forget to mention that Elite Game Developers sent you. Are you looking to promote your game with content creators? Maybe you've thought about it, but didn't have the time or budget to try it out. Now, with MatchMade Express campaigns, you can easily work with creators on sponsored YouTube videos for $500 per campaign. MatchMade scans a pool of 9.2 million creators to find you relevant fits. Your budget gets allocated to several creators and their content will go live in days instead of weeks. You don't need to worry about negotiating fees or handling the logistics of delivery. The result is authentic, creative content that drives genuine engagement. Head on over to matchmade.tv to try it out. And don't forget to mention that Elite Game Developers sent you. All right, we're recording. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I'm really, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure thing. This is going to be super interesting. I'm a actually a closet geek regarding the whole hyper casual and 
hybrid casual evolution all that think. stuff <laughs> yeah because it's it's such a like fascinating like the pace where you can see things work or not mm-hmm. is so out of this world really where like traditional game development is about like spending years and then seeing okay it didn't work our big dream failed but this is like right. you're not doing that at all you're constantly living from reading what people do so it's going to be super exciting to talk about these things i'm happy to jump into it and and maybe if i can add a little bit there i think that's that's really something that personally excites me a lot you know finding exploring very very fast and and finding concepts that other people would have thought actually that won't have a good retention that won't have a good long-term playtime but actually, when you test it, it actually does. And that's the beauty of killing things and dropping things as, as soon as possible. And then going on to the next idea, because we always want to find something actually quite big, but we need that initial signal to, to confirm future investment. We don't want to overinvest on, on day one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, but like, let's start off with you first, giving some kind of three minute introduction, a summary of how did you make your way into gaming and to eventually go and, and lead this section at, at Voodoo that you're doing now? Yeah. So I, I can, how I got into gaming, I can do that like a one-liner. One of my best friends worked <laughs> at Voodoo and I joined. That's it. Nice. Before gaming, uh, Voodoo is my first job in gaming. Uh, I, I uh, studied law and I practiced law. And as soon as I qualified as a practicing lawyer, I, I quit. And, and joined Voodoo. so that's how i got into it friends i already had a foot in the door because my friend was at voodoo and then when i joined voodoo i i joined the publishing team in hyper casual so that meant uh, working with lots of studios externally from voodoo about 20 25 studios per publishing manager and working with these uh, teams around the world doing ideation testing the games doing iterations and so good initial tests launching them, doing A-B tests on the hyper-casual side, and then yeah, helping these teams grow and, and, and improve their conversion rates and grow their teams and grow so on and so forth. So that was back in 2018, early 2018. And then about 10 months now, earlier this year, 2021, I moved out of the hyper-casual team and into the hybrid casual team. And, and so, yeah, did the same business model. So working with external teams on the hybrid casual games that we're now Again, ideating on, testing, iterating, uh, launching, doing A-B tests. And now, which is a new thing for me compared to hypercasual doing like proper live ops. Yeah, proper com- compared to hypercasual, maybe people from uh, more casual mid-core studios would not agree that we're doing live ops. But for us, it's baby steps towards that. Right, right. Voodoo is such an interesting company. You guys came sort of like into the limelight in 2018 with this big investment from Goldman Sachs, 200 million. And what has happened to Voodoo since that big fundraise? So a lot has changed and also nothing has changed in a way. So a lot has changed, obviously, as you said, it put us on the map. A lot of people suddenly knew about Voodoo and were interested in, in what story we had to tell, how we were working. So it was really good to attract lots of great talent to, to work with Voodoo and to continue Voodoo's growth. And also great to attract lots of new studios uh, to also work with us. So we already worked back then, I don't know the numbers, but we were already working with say a couple hundred studios and that really, the investment really helped us to attract even more studios to work with. But also the investment didn't change anything because I, I, was, I joined before the investment and I, so I, I saw before and after and day to day, like nothing changed. We were still doing the same calls with studios, the same ideation and brainstorming discussions and launching the same types of games and 
doing the same A-B test. So day to day, nothing has actually operationally changed. Uh, it was just an extra boost for us to, to continue doing what we were already doing well. The thing that I'm the biggest fan about is like how you've actually organized the publishing to work with these external studios. Like you have hundreds of external studios that you work with. How do you organize the process, the work there, so that each of the games from these external studios can have a proper tested. chance, yeah, and yeah. be tested, yeah. validated. Back then, it was it was really scrappy. It was yeah. super, super manual. Like everyone had to, every publishing manager had to manually help the studios integrate different uh, SDKs for the testing, set up the campaigns, start the campaigns, upload videos. It was super manual. Uh, fast forward to today, we've evolved a lot, and now we have an automated publishing platform where anybody can connect to and in a completely autonomous way upload any games and as many games as they want to test with us and then test them in a super automatic way. So there's as little as human blockers or human friction or human hands needed to launch these tests. And within a, a one day, people can launch their tests and then get results the next day on CPI, well, not retention, but at least on playtime. So it's super automated, super fast, and people can yeah use it as much as they want. Obviously, we, we have a team of publishing managers who work with these studios and help them on the ideation, on their tests, help understand their tests, and then guide them on either better ideas or better iterations. I think then thinking about the optimal way to test uh, mm -hmm. a game, how much content should there be for the players to play in this build like that that makes it into into the hands of the players and how do you set up those campaigns like can you share some sure. details there sure so on the first part of the question how much content do you need that's a very good question so typically we say no no more content than for, for the hyper casual side enough content for say 10 minutes of playtime that's it and then once you've okay. reached the 10 minutes of playtime then the content just kind of recycles so you replay the same levels. That's enough for us to have an initial signal on at least playtime. And we, obviously that won't be enough for a good day seven, maybe just a little bit, but we don't care about day seven on the first test, at least. The, what we want is the signal. And once we have that first strong signal, then, okay, that's a sign that, yeah, let's double down and invest more and do an iteration that will then move the needle on day three, day seven, and, and above day seven. On your second question was, how do we set up the campaigns? Yeah. So as I said, now it's completely automated. So on the dashboard, we have like a step-by-step -step guideline that studios can follow and integrate our own Voodoo SDK to that. Our own Voodoo SDK then incorporates other SDKs, mainly Facebook and game analytics. And all the Facebook SDK that we integrate, then that's what connects with our dashboard to run the campaign automatically. And the studios have access and a full transparency on the campaign, the spend, the CPI, and they see how, how, uh, how the game performs on a daily basis. Is CPI something that, as a measurement, you probably had, like, how do we handle CPI was something in 2018. Must be something in 2021 now. Yeah. Like, what does CPI mean as a KPI nowadays? Has it changed? Yeah, well, comparatively in the past, there was uh, more clarity and, and, and a faster clarity on, on, on CPI compared to today. There's more, more delays with all these new uh, regulations with iOS 14. But I think fundamentally, nothing much has changed. At the end of the day, for us, and what we've seen in our thousands of tests that we've done, what really governs a good CPI is a good game. 
it's a good gameplay and a clear gameplay. We, we obviously you can try to polish the turret, but at the end of the day, if the game is not good, you won't have a good CPI. There are always exceptions to this where like you find the great video that really reduces your CPI, but if you try to scale that, it, it won't hold. What we've seen is really the CPI is driven by the core gameplay. So it's finding a core gameplay that's clear, understandable, and new that people are interested to play in that will drive down the CPI for the most part. And then on top of that, yes, you can all reduce CPI by having different types of video tricks and funny wordings and emojis and stuff like that. But uh, the starting point is always the game. So a good game drives the low CPI. And we see that, we saw that all the time back in 2018, 19, and we still see that today. Uh, it's a good game that, good core gameplay that drives down CPI. So it, it is basically like you picking up the game and playing it, and you could even, even like measure now that how good the CPI will be by just getting the feel of like how understandable the game is and everything. Oh, for me, if you ask me to, to play a game and, and guess the CPI, I would be terrible. And <laughs> we always have to test. And that's yeah. why that when we have an idea, when a studio has an idea, there's question marks all over the place, question marks on CPI, question marks on retention and playtime. Then just test the market will tell you the answer. And that, that data point will then tell you either kill or move on to another idea. You need to add all resist the urge to to say hey we know these things already we need we don't need to test versus always testing is there any situations ever where it comes up oh absolutely so that's the thing with voodoo since well 2017 18 we accumulated tens of thousands of of gameplay tests so we have a huge treasure trove of data on cpi retention playtime for all these games that work so yes we definitely we have we do see trends both on CPI and on retention and playtime, that some things just do not work. And other things are systematically, more often than not, they really reduce CPI or increase retention. And and those are the types of guidelines that we then give to the studios at the ideation stage, at the iteration stage. And and that's how it's it's a really strong network network effect. Some people might challenge that it's a network effect, but to a certain degree, you could argue that. The more tests we receive, the more learnings we get. And therefore, the more knowledge we can share with the studios. To, to give you an example, we've always seen in testing, obviously at low scale testing, hyper casual games, or even hybrid casual games with cars or car based games, always really, really good CPI at the beginning. But as soon as you start increasing the, the spend and you start uh, going from $5,000 a spend, $10,000, $15,000 a spend daily, the, the CPI skyrockets and scales super, super bad. So it's always a, a, an amazingly great uh, surprise when you see that first test. You're like, wow, I've got a great game, great CPI. But then when you start pushing it a bit more, you're always up for a, a bit of a disappointment. Like the, the promise isn't as as good as it, it could have been. You want to explain that internally, like why it happened. When, when you see these kind of patterns happening, <laughs> do, do you want to drill down into like, why why does this occur? We have hypothesis, and I think the main one here is that well, car games is a niche, uh, and at the initial stage, Facebook is really good at finding that niche. That's why you have a good CPI, really good conversion rates, really good IPMs. But then once you spend more, and Facebook and the other app extend the reach, and more well, the niche is or well, hits its limit. That's why the CPI then rises really fast afterwards. That that's the most plausible hypothesis. But beyond having a hypothesis, so we're just looking at, well, this happens a lot. We've burnt our fingers many times on this. So maybe maybe let's let's try to avoid these types of games in the future to avoid future disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's so cool to see kind of like, I would want to see this kind of game publishing 
in all the platforms or for all sorts of games. But yeah, I guess wait and see like when we get to that point with the, the other yeah, teams well, on the other platforms. If all, if all goes well, we will be there in a couple of years. Exactly. Hey, hey then, then about the, the teams that you are working with, what, what have you learned about the characteristics of the teams that mm. can repeat success? Like yeah. they create a successful game and then they work on a new title and that's also a success. Are yeah. there any... Things there. I, I think I, I can give you two um, parts to the answer. One is on the team composition, and the other one is on the team mindset. So on the, the team composition, we found often that there was often some kind of power of two. Like it was always a duo that was very often at, at the at the origin of success and also repeat success. So it, it was always like a really creative person with a great creative vision, and that creative person was paired with uh, someone that was more technical, often a programmer, that understood that that vision really well, like at an almost animal level, and was able to re to transcribe that that vision into a, a core gameplay. So that means that that power of two was often um, what we we saw people like husband and wife, brother and brother, two brothers, two cousins, two best friends, and and that pattern is just like we see game patterns. We see patterns of the types of studios that emerge and. Without any guidance from us, I was just observing what we're seeing. And, and that then becomes a recommendation we give to studios is form a group or, or, or a very small unit around two people that get along really, really well for, for old friends, best friends from high school or whatever, family ties. And we've seen that more often than not, that, that kind of works. And, and I think, Eight. I'm not yeah. an expert, but I think that power of two is also true for a number of other industries, other oh, game genres outside of hyper casual and, and hybrid yeah yeah definitely yeah I've, I've seen that as well in my career i think we we had a chat previously about these pairs magical mm -hmm. pairs like supercell I, I when i was there i saw the same pattern emerge also at next games we had these pairs and it's mm -hmm. usually is is kind of like this maybe creative and analytical paired together like do you see that they evolve together over time to actually achieve new success so, so some, some definitely do and some definitely started as a pair and and then grow their businesses from success to success and, and that that's fantastic but what one condition to that growth is well the second part of the answer is, is the mindset and i think that the the mindset that we've seen is the most common to really uh, um, successful studios that repeat success is embracing failure very well. And I think it's very easy to say, but very hard to actually do that. And I think hypercasual is brutal in that sense because you have very short timeframes for production and you get results immediately. So and the market can be brutal at times. So you have to accept that failure and, and move on and always look to innovate. And so that first step is accepting failure and, and, and embracing it. And, and that can obviously take its toll and over, over time it bruises people. So uh, I like to say it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And, and the best studios have been around for a couple of years now, and they've done lot, hundreds of prototypes and all are in the bin. That was a, a necessary kill to find that those few gems that actually are amazing games. What would you say that a well-done failure looks like? Well-achieved failure? What is a good failure? That's a great question. I, I would say it's a, it's a failure where we had a clear hypothesis at the beginning. And we were at least able to A-B test one or two things at, at, 
at the same time. So whether it's at the like, MVP stage or it's at a stage where it's a bit more late game or, or live opsy maybe, I, I think that's a, the, a, a better type of failure where we can actually have actionable learnings out of it. And then that then helps us for the next prototype or the next feature to build. It guides our, our mindset in that regard. One, one of the regrets I have is often in hyper-casual is to be very transparent. Sometimes studios will just have a game idea, test it, and then move on to the next one without pausing to think about the, the failure because of the speed. So that's that's one of the regrets I've had. I would, I think we would benefit a bit more from that. Obviously not writing a book or a memoir about why a game failed, but there is a sweet spot somewhere where we ponder our, our failures a bit more. One final question regarding this, <laughs> like failure. It's, yeah. it's such an interesting space because it's the place where the learning happens. Yes. But like, have you seen it beneficial for people to stay close to the to the thematic, the genre where they failed for the next game, but that they're gonna try versus like like going from a shooter into something totally like a bubble, like something totally different. Yeah, to, to do a 180 degree switch. No, definitely. I think it's really good to, for say a specific amount of time, like six months, one year to drill down on one genre of games, mm -hmm. uh, because that obviously, like it's obviously you, you would stack up ex expertise. You can recycle learnings and features that you've already built from one game to the other, but also it, 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 uh, it helps you to, it increases your chances of finding the, the best version of this type of game that you're doing, like the best version of a shooter or the best version of a, a runner. To give you an example, OHM games or home games, one of the best uh, French hyper-casual studios we've uh, had the chance to work with until quite recently, they were always focused on more say, chaotic physics games where you kind of move lots of things around. It was action-based kind of shooter at times. So they had a series of three, yeah, I think three, four hit games with us. And it was just around the same genre slash theme. And each time they were launching one, they had another idea to build on top of it for another core gameplay. I think that's the best example of what we can do on, on uh, stacking up expertise and, and, and uh, deepening expertise in one type of game. But you can make the counter argument also, like sometimes people need to kind of have a breath of fresh air and look at something completely different. And, I completely understand and, and encourage that also. But if you can, you have, have the motivation to focus down and drill down in one genre, definitely do. Let's talk a bit about the live ops. So when a game goes live, have, have like how have you seen developers organize the live ops so that they keep these games growing since they, they're like built in such a fast pace? Like, yeah. What does the live then look like? So I think the... Two answers, one would be about the hyper-casual side and one would be about the hybrid side. On the hyper-casual side, straight answer, there's really not much live ops going on. Like obviously we do A-B tests on the core gameplay, on, on new content, but typically the lifespan is of, of work on a hyper-casual game after launch is maybe two, three months. And then that's it. And then the studio comes goes back to prototyping stage. They do the, the irregular update for like SDKs and icons, but that's it really. So on the hyper-casual side, there's not much live ops. On the hybrid side, however, what we are discovering now is, well, yes, the, the lifespan of the game is much longer than just say, two, three months. It's measured in not decades, but definitely in two, three, four years worth of work. So in that case, we are seeing the more traditional live ops on, that we can see from casual games or mid-core games with seasonal events, regular updates to, to game content, side quests. So I think we're seeing that obviously in, in a diluted way, but it's a much bigger step towards real live ops uh, compared to hyper-casual. When you have a deeper game versus the hybrid casual, the hyper casual, do you actually see that there's growth for 
like building up a bigger game when you s- sort of launch a small game. Because I, what I've observed with, with the hybrid and the hyper casual is that usually the, the meta is so shallow <laughs> that it's yeah. it's kind of hard to to start slapping things on top of it later on without like changing the game fundamentally. And a lot oh. of developers might not be willing to do that. What are your thoughts yeah. there? Definitely. So I think I remember watching, uh, it was last year, a YouTube presentation by Supercell that explained how they did their gauntlet or season pass. And mm. what I take, what I took from it was that if they just put it on there without changing other things in the game, it would not have succeeded. So before doing that, they needed to change other things, like add new content, new, new, new content in the game. And then the season pass made a lot more sense and was very powerful. To me, it's the same thing with any kind of meta or live ops, like the, the core game in itself has to be, has to have a strong foundation. So typically we wouldn't add meta game on a game that has like uh, medium retention or medium playtime. What, what I mean by strong foundations is again, yeah, retention and playtime. So we're looking at day 30s over 10% and playtime over 30 minutes. That for us is a really strong foundation or compared to hyper casual to, to add meta game and, and do live ops on it. It justifies the investments. So, Naturally, there will be types of hyper-casual game that will never get there. Typically, runners. <laughs> runners, we, we've done a lot of runners. We've never seen any of them getting anywhere close to these, these metrics. They're really good games, but uh, not that much on the long term. So yeah. we're seeing more shooter-type hyper-casuals or puzzle-type hyper-casuals that have these like 10-day, 30, 30-minute playtime type of metrics. And therefore, that's, a, again, a signal for us to invest more and do add extra meta game, add extra. So we definitely segment the type of games we, we invest in. Yeah, I think this is a good point to, to talk a bit about the, the hybrid casual games that you've been recently getting involved into. Can you explain how you at Voodoo define hybrid casual? Sure. So actually, our internal definition has changed somewhat over the, over this year. But the, the, the latest definition I, I could give you is we're, we're looking for core gameplays that are accessible. So that doesn't mean hyper-casual core gameplays because that's not true, but it's a mass market core gameplays that can be picked up really quickly and that people can understand within a few seconds from watching an ad. And the second part of the definition for for these accessible core gameplays, we are adding diluted slash simplified meta gameplay from anywhere from casual, mid-core, hardcore, PC, like any, any, anywhere else that we find a, a, a meta game that we can simplify and dilute and adapt to these accessible gameplays. So that's kind of a big picture, our, our definition of, of hybrid casual. Yeah. What are some of the insights that you've now seen since you've been doing both hyper and hybrid casual games? Are the, are the audiences similar? Like, do, does the user acquisition work in a similar way? What are some, some yeah. interesting things there? Definitely on, on, on the user acquisition side, it helps to have done a lot of user acquisition on the hyper-casual side because that helps tremendously on the hybrid side, not just in how we do the creatives, but how the marketing team is approaching CPI and approaching conversion rate and IPM. I think the way Voodoo has typically done creative work compared to bigger players out there, like King, Playrix, to name a few, is very different. Like The creative teams are set up and have a different mindset. So coming in from a hyper-casual side, I think is definitely has benefited us a lot to well, reduce CPI, to speak plainly, to reduce CPI of our games with using hyper-casual creatives and attracting a mass market audience into our more hybrid games. But another insight that we're seeing now is that more on the product, the games that we are starting from to build a hybrid 
gameplay often can be built within say two weeks. So the MVP takes two weeks. So that's actually very similar to a hyper casual timeframe. Initially, we thought, oh, okay, we're going to do hybrids. We're going to spend one month, six weeks, you know, to, to build a prototype. Actually, that, that was wrong. We don't need that much time. Because again, just like in the hyper casual side, we, to find good long-term retention, to find a 20% day seven, to find a 10 day, thir day 30 game, you don't need months and months of work. You can find it. And we have found it with a MVP of just two, three weeks. And that's it. So that's, that's not all the time the case, but definitely the approach of finding those signals early on and investing as little as possible in the MVPs to find good signals, that that approach is definitely uh, resonating with us and something we've taken over from the hyper-casual side to, to apply to hybrid. But is the audience, what do you think, like different for, yes. for hybrid casual versus the, the hyper-casual audience? It's a definitely one, it's a, it's a bigger audience than hyper casual in the sense that it will incorporate people that are more likely to, to spend. And they're more likely to spend simply because the core gameplay, has, there's a bigger playtime. So if people spend more time in the game, they're more invested, they're, they're likely to, to, to spend in the game. Versus hyper casual where we obviously spend less time, so they're, not, they're less likely to spend. But overall, we're seeing a huge, huge overlap. I, I don't have exact numbers to, to share, unfortunately on this, but yes, we were seeing broadly the, the same audience plus people who are, who are higher spenders. And I think the, that, that's the, a good thing with yeah. hybrid because, sorry, that's a good thing with hybrid because it, it answers different needs at the same time. People who just want to play the game and maybe not spend and have a, a nice uh, experience, satisfying experience. And at the same time, it addresses the need for people who are more hardcore, want to play a game and kind of grind it and they want to pay into the game. So I think that's it strikes a really good balance and that's it. Yeah, actually the, the hardcore aspect is super interesting because like you talk about different kind of genres inside mm -hmm. hybrid casual mm -hmm. or do you actually label those games uh, internally? Because like I'm thinking constantly, yes. hey, this is like casual strategy. There's nothing like that. <laughs> like there <laughs> can't be or, or can there? Like have you, have you had those kind of discussions? So in terms of, for, for labeling games, definitely we, we, we are, and there's types of hybrid we're, we're looking to do. So typically the main one we're, we're doing now, we have two games out in the charts that we've pushed out, Bubble Buster 2048 and, and Collect Them All, and, and these are more puzzle in, in, in nature. So we are looking to expand that and to go into more puzzle simply because we know that retention can be pretty good. And we also know that we can reduce CPI from all the learnings we have on the, the hyper casual side. But on top of that, we're also looking at other, other genres. So we're looking at more mid-core games, more action-based games, uh, more tower defense type games, also tabletop and, and, and casino. So we're, we're casting a very wide net, but that's simply because just like, again, in the hyper-casual side, we're very fast in testing many, many ideas because we have such short production timeframes. And talking about the, the publishing operations that you have, mm -hmm. how are you developing those publishing or the whole organization that you have there at Voodoo and right. what are the areas that you're seeing at Voodoo to take the next steps to become even a better publisher for, for the hyper and hybrid developers? Right. So on, on the hyper casual side, I think definitely continuing the, the, the investments into the publishing team, the publishing dashboard or the content side, but I, I can't say too much on this. Unfortunately, it's, I can only tease. You'll see this next year, but on the hyper casual side, there is an academy that, that will be to share even more knowledge 
to anyone who wants uh, to access that knowledge on game design, game development, art, optimization of games, launching games for anybody. So here the aim is more to raise the bar, also not raise the bar, but to upskill as many people as possible and to give everybody a chance to have to equip them with the best tools and the best knowledge possible to, to succeed in hyper-casual. So that's going to be the next big step, more for next year. On the hybrid side, so we already have today a central casual team made up of veterans of more casual and mid-core studios who joined Voodoo to, to build up this hybrid casual efforts. And the central team is working with all the internal studios and the external to help them and accelerate their production and simplify things for them. So that can be on, on tech, on data, on product performance, on economy design. So we have a team of around uh, 12, 15 people in, in the central unit. And the central unit then shares all their learnings and their expertise with studios internally and externally at Voodoo on hybrid. And the also good thing is that this uh, central team is really acts as a, as a pivotal point. So one learning from one studio is then immediately documented and then shared with all the other studios, again, to upskill everybody as fast as possible at the same time. And so for the future of this, uh, this team in hybrid, well, obviously we're continuing investment in, in this team and in hiring more people in the central team and more people into the, the hybrid casual publishing team, uh, which is where I work, to work with even more studios externally and can scale the number of tests and increase the, 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 te- the attempts we have on goal. Like, how do you think about the whole mobile games industry, which is, is kind of, I would say, will it get even more mature than it is already? Because <laughs> it, it, like, there's so many games out there. It's kind of maybe even somebody says it's a red ocean already for, for games. What do you see kind of challenges for, for mobile game publishing going forward? Yeah, that's a good question. It's definitely more competitive. I'm not going to say it's less competitive than before. It's definitely more competitive. However, just like any other artistic industry, whether it's the book publishing, music, or, or, or movies and series, there's an, an increasing uh, supply of content. But that doesn't mean that we can't always find like a gem, like something that really performs really well. And like Squid Game from, from Netflix came out of nowhere. And, and it, it was a huge success. Nobody could have predicted that. So I think the sa- same still applies, definitely applies for any other medium, of any artistic medium, whether it's game or books or, or music. And for me here, there's, there's, I, I like to think there's nothing new under the sun. So whenever we think, or a studio thinks, oh, there's, I'm tired, I can't ideate, I can't uh, innovate anything on, on this genre. I think we always look back at what worked well in 2015, 16, 17, and, and then reinvent it, modernize it with today's taste, today's mechanics, today's tech, also tech also evolves. It is something that well, today we're, we have a luxury to have better than before. For sure. And all the learnings from our failures. True. Yeah, that's true. Hey, before we go to the final questions, I wanted to ask you what, what you've learned from that, that part of making this creative endeavor of games, the, the whole innovation aspect. And how do you Think about these new things like crypto, NFTs, blockchain coming into gaming. And could there be a place for those in the casual? What do you think? 100% there's a place for those in the casual realm. I think uh, all, all these new technologies with blockchain and, and the, the excitement there is around that, I think is, is, is a great opportunity uh, and definitely one that, that Wood is looking into very actively. So it's, it's a new way of engaging with content. It's a new way for people to maybe all, uh, play to earn. 
So it's new opportunities and people are excited about that. People want more of that. So definitely something we, we, we see a lot of uh, space to maneuver in. There are big players already in that. But again, I think right now we're at the beginning. It's just like at the beginning of free-to-play. I think I think we're seeing the, the same signals that we, we were seeing in being a free-to-play. I wasn't there, obviously, but uh, when I read and I talk to people uh, about how it was before, it, there's a lot of parallels with that. We haven't yet seen sort of the supercell of blockchain gaming exactly. come up. So, yeah. Hey, for some final questions, Corentin, first yeah. off, What's your favorite book and why? So one of the recent books that I've really, really enjoyed reading, and it's one of the few books I probably will read again multiple times. It's it's actually some kind of an essay slash biography, Anti-Fragile. By, and what I really... So the, the way I found the book was by reading a, an interview by the Shopify CEO uh, who recommends this book to every first employee uh, when they join Shopify. So I was just curious about it. And I think it's really, really interesting. And, and for me, it is, I, I see a lot of parallels with what I was doing and how I approach my work, but also personally my life. And to summarize it, why I like it, I, I think it's, I, I like the fact that it, we always have to be out there observing and looking for the signals. And then as soon as we see an opportunity that can have a tremendous upside and, and low downside, then go into it. And for that, I, I see so many parallels with what I'm doing right now at Voodoo in, in publishing games. Yeah, it's such a cool, cool book. Sure. Hey, do you have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today? I'm only giving this answer because I had sushi for lunch, <laughs> but I, uh, I I really liked the story of uh, this Japanese chef, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if you saw this. It was a Japanese chef, like a three Michelin star, has a tiny, tiny restaurant in the subway of Tokyo, and he's 85 years old. <laughs> And his son is 50 years old and they work together. And the, the son is at 50 years old is still under the orders of his dad at 85 or almost 90 years old. And, and the, the, the story is fascinating, I think, because the, the, the man is still just doing sushi and always in the quest of finding the perfect sushi and always raising the bar for himself higher and higher. So yeah, <laughs> but this answer is more dictated by my lunch. That's cool. A really cool story. Sushi is great. I'm going to have some tomorrow. Hey, Corentin, this was so good. I think we need to do another one in the future when, when we've learned a, a ton of more stuff. But the final question is like, what's the best way for maybe developers out there who want to wanna get in contact with you and Voodoo? Sure. sure. The best way is to uh, get in touch either through LinkedIn or through email. But sometimes my spam is a bit uh, capricious, so maybe LinkedIn is, is easier. So yeah, my email is, uh, should I say it now? Yeah. yeah. For those who aren't French, Corentin is spelled C-O-R-E-N-T-I-N at voodoo.io. <laughs> cool. This was so good. I wish all the best to you and, and the team there. And Thank you. hope to see a lot of interesting games coming out. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Take care. See you. Bye. 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 If you like our content, please hit follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please go and check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter on what's happening in gaming startups. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.